0: This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello,
1: and welcome to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe, and I'd just like to thank you, our listeners, for helping to make our own little piece of history as we reach episode 200 of the English Heritage Podcast today. Don't forget to subscribe for brand new episodes every Thursday, and be sure to rate and review the podcast to help spread the word. Today we're looking at both the past and the future, as we reveal six amazing but little-known sites to visit in 2023, which have all benefited from a major project to retell their stories for visitors in new and exciting ways. Guiding us through those sites are, for the first time on the podcast, Kate Maver, Chief Executive of English Heritage. Hello there. And the charity's Storyteller-in-Chief, Head of Learning and Interpretation, Dr Dominique Bouchard. Hi, Charles. So, as we've just mentioned, we're going to look at six key sites that have benefited from major improvements for visitors. But I gather that this project actually extends much further. So, Kate, can you tell us a bit more about what's been happening behind the scenes and why.
0: Well, Charles, uh, we became a charity, as you may know, in 2015. And what we wanted to do was to invest in the 420 sites that we protect for the nation. And so the bigger investments, of course, were with sites that have large numbers of visitors, where you've got car parks and toilets and shops and cafes and all those things. And uh, it's Part of what we do to generate income for all the charitable work we do. But many of our sites are never going to generate income for us. And these are the ones that we invest in so that they remain accessible to people, that they can visit them safely. But most importantly, to bring out the fact that they're absolutely fascinating. So, uh, what we've wanted to do is invest in their interpretation. And so that means, as you'd expect, interpretation panels that you see when you go out onto a site, uh, our audio guides, online videos and other things like interactive exhibits and games and trails for families, all that kind of thing. And and that's so that we can bring the story to life and remind people that you're visiting somewhere unique. Nowhere else has this story and this is actually where history was made in this place.
1: Yes. Just picking up on what you've said there about interpretation, this is a sort of buzzword that you use in the biz. And it sort of means, I suppose, storytelling, doesn't it? Explaining things to the public.
0: Well, that's right, because every site is in the collection because it's got some historical significance. So you want to go and see, why are we looking after this? Why is it important to conserve it for the next generation? And the reason is because something happened there. Or something interesting can be said about the place or someone who lived there, or where it is strategically in the country, if it was you know part of a battlefield or where someone had a brilliant idea. And all these things are what we tell on the panels. So you'll rock up somewhere, you'll you know pull up the car maybe, and you'll go and wander into a field, and you'll see a stone circle and you won't know anything about it. But then on the interpretation panel, it helps you date it, understand why it might be there. We try and tell you as much as we know without, you know, overwhelming you. But often we don't know an awful lot, of, lot about some of the more more ancient sites, and so what we do is explain what we do know and why it's interesting and unique.
1: It is really important to be able to tell these stories because, as you say, people won't understand what they're looking at when they arrive. Otherwise, so. Which site out of the six that we're going to discuss has had the most significant changes in terms of this presentation of information?
0: Well, the one that we're doing the most with of the six we're talking about is probably Richborough and Kent. And that's because we have done a really exciting archaeological dig there of the amphitheatre. So, what you need to know about Richborough is it's where the Romans actually arrived when they first invaded in AD 43. And they were there in Britain for 400 years, and they brought some of their fun things with them from Italy and other parts of the empire. So they wanted to have an amphitheater so that they could have games and entertainment. And so we excavated it recently to find out even more than we knew before. But alongside that, we're building a whole new gate to show the scale of the entrance to Britannia as it was, that the Romans landing there would have seen when they were coming to this new land. And that is quite a big intervention for us. It's really just to give people a sense of the scale. I mean, it'll be made of wood and it'll be something that just helps people realise that this was a really established place.
1: Yes, because we should probably explain and we've covered in a previous podcast about the Roman invasion of Britannia and how there was was this giant gateway subsequently erected at Richborough, which would have been the key signifier that traders or dignitaries or visitors or immigrants are entering Britannia. It was a very big structure. Are there any other sites where major things are happening?
0: Yes, I think if you look back over the years, the ones that stand out in my mind are, for example, at Beeston Castle in Cheshire, where we have put up a Bronze Age roundhouse based on all the archaeological evidence we have about how they would have built a roundhouse. And it was built by volunteers in the locality. And it's a stunning piece of architecture because you go there and you just think, gosh, people lived like this in this kind of space and it really brings it to life much more than it would if you just saw a drawing of it you can actually go into it and you know smell the air inside and it it feels like a really fantastic way of bringing to life that period in history so that would be an example of you know where we've invested to tell the story in a much more imaginative way and a whole class of school children can sit inside that roundhouse and find out about bronze age britain so i think that's the one that really stands out for me but Other things that we've done that that have brought about quite a big change is where we've put museums in where we didn't have museums before. So burr Oswald Fort on Hadrian's Wall has got a new museum space, uh, Richmond Castle in Yorkshire. And of course, Richmond Kent, which we've talked about already, is one where we are going to put in new museum exhibits. And they're small museums and they're concise, but they have the artifacts that we found actually on that site. They've not been... Creamed off and sent to an exhibition in a city somewhere. They are there where they were found, where they were used, and that I think is what's particularly special about English heritage museums: is the fact that you're actually seeing the artifacts where they were used and discovered.
1: Why was it necessary to make all these changes and put in this investment? And why did you decide to undertake these changes in the last couple of years?
0: Well, it's one of those things that you've constantly got to be doing. I mean, the interpretation panels that you see at our sites, I mean, most of them are outside and they suffer from weather damage. You know, they get bleached by the sun or they get damp or they get mold on them. So after a while, they're just not doing their job. So there's a a lot of that to be done. But also, you know, tastes change and people learn differently and there's new technologies that we have to keep up with. So we have digital guides now. We've got bring your own device where you can actually find out more by you know, accessing information on your own phone when you're at a site. We've got interactive exhibits and videos and all these things because tastes and expectations change and people want to learn in different ways. So that's part of the reason why we wanted to keep up with the times. But we also understand better now how people learn. So, you know, we bring our educational expertise to bear on how we present stories in a in a lively and engaging way, but also so that it's memorable. And so that, you know, six months later, people can still remember why the Romans built the Hadrian's Wall in the way they did. You know, because when they were at Bird Oswald Fort, they and the kids actually built the wall out of Lego. And so because <laughs> they actually did it themselves and had to think about how they were building it, that sticks in the mind much more. And so we're bringing that understanding of how people learn into the exhibits so that people go away with something that they'll always remember.
1: Speaking of Rome, they say that Rome wasn't built in a day. So how much work and time has been involved in transforming these more than 100 sites to, to improve them for visitors?
0: Well, we've been working on these, this particular um, batch of sites for about eight years now. And we've invested £10 million, we've done historical research, we've commissioned design and installation. We have a dedicated team of about 10 people who just work on the smaller and the free sites. All of our historians, of whom we have about 12 on the payroll, they all have had some role in each and every one of the projects. And we've also commissioned absolutely amazing vivid reconstruction illustrations which we're immensely proud of. We think these are the best quality in the land where you can see the whole of an inside of a castle or a monastery or a stately home actually depicted with all the little figures and the detail. And that's really helpful for people to imagine how something looked. And I would say, I mean, probably our biggest project over the last eight years would have been Hadrian's Wall because we've had to upgrade more than 20 panels all along the wall most of them outdoors in you know in kind of wild landscapes so it's it's been a real endeavor and we do it with great pride because we know that you know for people who are just walking the walk or out and about is such a joyous discovery to come across something that tells them what happened there.
1: Dominique I think you had something to say about the breadth of the work that's taken place it's it's really been a completely national project from north to south.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We call it the Small and Free Sites Enhancement Program. It's pretty big mouthful. But really what it is, is taking at each of these sites that, that somebody might visit, you know, it may only be one panel, but that panel has been lovingly created and imagined by historians, curators, Experts, the reconstruction artists who work in tandem with with our experts to help put a this together and I think the program is spanned from Barrick to the tip of Cornwall, and what that means is that you know you can visit any English heritage site around the country and using the panels and the interpretation that's there, it can help you really understand what you're seeing and just because these sites are small, they're sort of no less mighty in terms of doing heavy lifting and telling the story of England. You know, they're probably put in a thousand panels around the country, but I'd say no one of them is going to be any any more important or any less important than any other.
1: Well, let's focus now on those six sites, Dominique, that have seen the biggest changes from oldest to youngest. And we've got Grimes Graves Prehistoric Flint Mine, Richborough Roman Fort, as we've touched on, Roxeter Roman City, Lindisfarne Priory, Walkworth Castle and Whitley Court. So, beginning with Grimes' Graves, by some distance the strangest name site on our list, am I right in thinking that these aren't actually graves and that they don't belong to anyone called Grime?
2: That's exactly right. Grimes' Graves isn't a graveyard or a cemetery, it's really a mine with more than 400 shafts and pits. And they're visible as a kind of lunar pockmarked landscape covering an area of about six and a half hectares. But just rolling back, Grimes Graves is in Norfolk, it's near Thetford. And as you were saying, Charles, it's got a really weird name. So the name Grimes Graves is Anglo Saxon in origin. And the Anglo Saxons believed that the landscape was the kind of work of a Saxon god called Grimm. There's a mound on the eastern side of the site, which is known as Grimshoe or Grimshow Mound. And it's kind of a sort of a corruption of Grim's Howe or Grim's Burial Mound. And the name stuck. And that's how we have Grimes Graves today.
1: What's been going on at the site? What can visitors expect from a visit once they get there?
2: Well, I'd say that really of the six hidden gems that we're discussing today, Grimes Graves is in my view, particularly incredible. So it's this vast landscape that when visitors arrive, they'll see, and it was transformed totally by people thousands of years ago. It's easy to think about the kind of human impact on the environment as a a contemporary phenomenon, but sites like Grimes Graves can remind us of the extraordinary ways that people have been shaping the world for millennia. So, When visitors attend, there's a visitor center, an exhibition, but really the most exciting part is visiting one of the shafts. And this has been the primary focus of the work that we've done there. The mine shafts that the miners dug, you know, thousands of years ago were about 13 meters deep to get down to where the best flint sort of seams were. And they worked in these subterranean galleries at the base of each shaft using antlers and other kinds of bone to dig out the flint, you know, using these as picks. The shafts are more than 46 feet deep, about 14 meters deep, and about 12 meters in diameter. So they are vast. And they would have taken around 20 workers, five months to dig just one shaft. That is incredible. And I think that is the thing for visitors to be thinking about when they get there and they see these marks, Each of those little divots in the ground is a mine shaft. And just to sort of soak in what would have been involved to have so many people spending such a long time just to dig one of these, and, the, and then you multiply that by the number of shafts there. So although about 28 of them have been excavated, most of them haven't, obviously, one of the shafts where we've built a little hut, uh, visitors can go down into, and we've created a new sort of interpretative experience there. So, you know, when you go down to a mineshaft and you look at a bunch of what essentially looks like caves, it's, you know, most people can't really understand what that is. So we've created a new audio visual, I guess, uh, piece for inside the shaft as well that are really going to help visitors understand what they're looking at. And it's absolutely extraordinary. We should also say there's a brand new teacher's kit and Grimes is one of those really special English heritage sites where actually the majority of visitors are schools. So it's really important. It plays such an important role for us as part of our education mission as a charity.
1: Yes, because the whole concept of prehistoric miners is something that most people won't have probably entertained. They think of the people who moved stones from Wales to Stonehenge, for example, but they might not necessarily associate those people with digging massive pits. (laughs) So uh, I think that's a remarkable thing to think about in terms of the other areas of engineering that were taking place during prehistory.
2: Absolutely. And the coordination, you know, digging 433 pits, 20 people took five months just to dig down one pit. That's excluding the galleries where they actually did the mining. You know, this is a huge work project that required extensive and complex project management. And the idea that in 2650 BC, this is going on just outside of Thetford kind of boggles the mind, but we always need to remember people in the past are just like us and they they managed to do this. And this Flint was so desirable that it was exported, you know, all over England and across the continent. And that this was a site of international significance now, but also at the time when there were people working it. And of course, as you say, this is around the same time that many of the stones at Stonehenge and Avery were first raised. So 4,500 years ago, and you have this incredible mining operation happening that I think most people have never heard of. And it's just the most extraordinary place.
1: Well, let's move forward through time now into the Roman period. And for listeners who aren't familiar with Richborough Roman Fort. Could you just give us a quick overview? We talked about how it's this gateway of Britannia, but why is Richborough Roman Fort so significant to the history of Britain?
2: 2,000 years ago, it was on the Kent coast, and that was there that, or around there, that the invading Roman forces first came ashore in Britain. So today it's about two miles inland, but at the time when, when the Romans arrived in about 43 AD it was on the coast so this was the main entry point from mainland europe and over time as the so this roman army arrives and it becomes the place the first place for a roman foothold in britain and becomes really the staging post for the roman expansion of the empire so there's a certain amount of scholarly debate about the exact landing point but this is where that claudian invasion force of 40,000 men arrived in 43 AD as an incredible number of people again so richborough is really at the heart of roman britain's origin story it's the start of that transformation that again is visible today not just in richborough but across england you know down to many of the roads that we drive on now which were built by the romans so it's one of those places you know that you can stand you know with your back to the sea 2 miles behind you but just imagine what it would have been like for those roman soldiers who arrived in britain for the first time and also for the people who are kind of living around there all of a sudden these kitted up tooled up soldiers arrive speaking a language that was unfamiliar this was a, must have been an incredible moment in history for the people who witnessed it and and you know and visitors can go to richborough and think about these things at the place where you know where they happened
1: yes because what started off as just this landing point became Actually, quite a large settlement with, as Kate's described, an amphitheater that uh, has been recently excavated by archaeologists. So, how big was this settlement?
2: Well, it's a bit debatable, but um I think the amphitheater certainly could have accommodated up to five thousand people. There's some discussion about whether, you know, if you had a landing force of forty thousand people, you had a transition. So, you would have had all of these soldiers. They would have then sort of gone off into the hinterland on campaigns. And then you would have had a port and a town sort of rise up from that that would have not just then supported the military campaigns, but had its own sort of function as the place where goods and services, essentially from Britain and from other parts of the empire, would have come into contact. So, It's difficult to pin down a population number. There certainly would have been people going through Richborough from all over the place and the collections and the excavations have have supported that. I guess the heyday of the town was in the second century and I guess the icon of Richborough would have been the Roman arch that was built there. This was a, a major triumphal arch, one of the biggest in the Roman Empire. It was put up in about 85 AD And it was straddling Watling Street, which was the main road from Richborough to London. And just like all triumphal arches in the Roman world, it symbolized Richborough's status and was a gateway to Britain, the main and most important port of entry from the continent.
1: And it's this triumphal arch, this gateway, which has been recreated as part of the new storytelling that's been presented at Richborough. So could you give us a bit, bit more detail about how it appears to visitors?
2: Yeah, I mean, the original Roman arch was covered with high quality Italian granite with sculptures and inscriptions. So we haven't actually imported marble from Italy or granite from Italy to do this. The arch that we've done is with wood, but it will give visitors an opportunity to climb up and see the site from a different perspective. And it will give certain the impression of something which was you know, an echo of the original triumphal arch in at Richborough. You know, so when you go there, it will be really incredible to see this structure sort of rising up from the ground, and you'll be able to get a sense of what it must have, have been like to be a somebody at Richborough during the Roman period.
1: Is this wooden structure actually on the very spot where the original stood?
2: Yes, yes, it is.
1: And the visitor experience then by climbing up onto this structure would actually be something that perhaps a normal Roman, perhaps only a stonemason, would be able to experience.
2: Yeah, I'd say a stonemason. Roman arches weren't used as kind of viewing platforms like that. So you wouldn't have people kind of routinely going up into them or or sort of standing on them. But you certainly, by going up, can definitely put yourself in the perspective of, of someone who would have been building it or, you know, helping to work it which is pretty remarkable thing to be able to do
1: that sounds like a really fantastic addition to the site because obviously visitors are getting to do something that most romans would not have been able to experience uh, so i think that's really valuable isn't it
2: definitely and with all of our projects again richborough isn't necessarily some place where most listeners will have heard of, but it's such an important place and pivotal place in terms of the history of England and the trajectory of of England's story. So all of these things that we do at these sites, whether it's the museum, whether it's an audio guide, family trail, exhibition panels, or, or really bold and exciting and risky things like building a big arch, are all there to help people Understand the site and understand that story in different ways. You know, different things work for different people. Not everybody's going to read the guidebook from end to end. And so we want to offer a range of ways for people to get into that story.
1: There's lots of things to discover at Richborough Roman Fort, thanks to these improvements to the storytelling that have been made. But one of the key things, of course, will be the new visitor center. So, what will visitors find in there?
2: We've got a new exhibition, and for those listeners who love museums, the museum display is absolutely beautiful, wonderful, incredible objects from Richborough that you can see there, and I think it's those small objects, at least for me in particular, which are always the most evocative, to look at a hairpin or, or something, and it really connects you with the person or the people who might have used it in the past. So the visitor center and the, the museum is really teeming with that material, and We'll also give you a great introduction to the history you don't need to know anything about richborough or about roman britain or really anything about the history to enjoy it it's all packaged up there for you so go to this incredible place and you'll get to immerse yourself and if you're if you're somebody who likes to read panels then there's wonderful evocative stories that you'll get from that but if you want to just soak in the atmosphere you know we cater for everything at these places
1: Speaking of soaking in, there's the audio guide. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: So we've tried something a bit different with the audio guide at Richborough, as well as giving visitors key information about the site. We've also included some interviews with people today whose lives and experiences might give listeners some sort of firsthand personal insight into the lives of the Romans at Richborough in the first century AD. The Family Trail, which is also new, also has some really hidden gems for those with a very keen eye. So there's a character based on the author, Rosemary Sutcliffe, who will feature in The Family Trail. And of course, this is because Sutcliffe's beloved historical novel, The Lantern Bearers, both begins and ends at Richborough. So there's some little little nuggets for people to discover through The Family Trail as well, both children and adults.
1: Staying with the Romans, we'll focus now on Roxeter Roman City. Tell us where that is.
2: Roxeter is a really impressive ancient Roman site. It's in Shropshire. It's about 5 miles from Shrewsbury, and it houses, I guess, the remains of what was once known as Viriconium. That's the Roman name for it, and it was Roman Britain's fourth largest city. So Roman Roxeter was on the bank of the Severn and also on a route leading into the Wye Valley. So it was a really important intersection and place where people, you know, would connect Roman Britain to other parts of of England. In the 1st century, it was a garrison fort, but over time and as again as the Roman period in Britain became more established, it evolved into a city which once spread over nearly 200 acres and at its peak had about 5,000 people living there, making it almost as large as Pompeii although not quite as populous.
1: So a really important place, effectively.
2: Really, really important place, both in the history of Rome and actually in the history of England, both as a Roman place. But it was discovered in 1859 when workmen began excavating the Baths Complex, and Roxeter was one of England's first archaeological visitor attractions. So it has a, a kind of an important history as well in the history of people I guess getting taken to Roman sites by their dads since 1859.
1: Well, one of the key things about Roxeter, I think people will know about if they've seen any YouTube videos on the English Heritage YouTube channel, is these massive walls that really strike you. Presumably, these have always been visible for centuries, even since the Romans left.
2: Yes, of course. So, I mean, in its heyday, Roxeter had all the kind of characteristic Roman trappings that you'd expect to see. So, tanneries, pottery, Glassware, metal, jewelry makers, and all these public buildings, and including um, baths and a colonnaded forum. So what you're talking about is a seven-meter-high basilical wall, which is actually the largest piece of freestanding Roman wall in the country. And these sorts of walls were certainly indicators that there was something there, and and we see them really. They're scattered all over the place. In London, you have bits of the Roman wall, and and of course Hadrian's Wall being the most famous bit of wall of Roman wall in, in the country.
1: Of course. So really a a really important site nationally across what was Britannia. Was it like the Birmingham of today, you know, England's second major city?
2: Well I guess it would be England's fourth major city as opposed because it was Romans the fourth largest Roman city, but I think that Birmingham is probably a really good analogy because of all of the the different trades and crafts that were there, because of the kind of buzz and that, to me, that buzz that you get in a city now where there's lots of activity, lots of different types of trades, of commerce, that's the sort of buzz that Roxeter would have had. I think from that perspective, it's a really good, it's really good great analogy.
1: So what else will people be able to experience as part of this visit to Roxeter Roman City?
2: Roxeter, again, is one of these sites where we have the majority of visitors are actually school groups. And so it's such an important place for us as a charity in terms of providing education. And so there'll be new educational activities available at Roxeter as well. And I think the interpretation or the panels that we're going to be putting up around the site are really going to do a great job of helping people to orient themselves within the city, but also understand how it all would have worked and bring to life some of the people, you know, whose stories really help us connect with people in the past.
1: Is there an undercover sort of purpose-built visitor centre, gift shop, that sort of thing as well?
2: Yeah, there's a, a visitor center and museum and so the museum, just like with Roxeter, is, is newly refurbished and the displays in there are really beautiful and again you'll be able to see objects that came from Roxeter that were excavated and that really hopefully will be will help people connect with the Roman Britons that lived there.
1: Hmm, a fascinating period. Well, another one which is a favourite among our listeners is the medieval period. So we move on to Lindisfarne Priory now and head to the northeast of England. It's a name that people might have heard of, but could you tell us a bit more about Lindisfarne?
2: Lindisfarne, as you've said, many people will have heard of Lindisfarne Priory, and it's off the Northumberland coast, not far from Berwick. So the island of Lindisfarne is probably one of the most significant sites in terms of England's history. And that's, of course, arguable, but that's my perspective. It's significant both from social and political history perspectives, and it's probably also one of the most remote and therefore precarious sites to visit, especially if you're driving because of the stretch of road that allows you to access it by car gets covered by the tides at high tide. So it's a wonderful place and you you sort of make a special effort to go there. And I think in, in lots of ways that makes it more meaningful. So in terms of its history, Irish monks settled in Lindisfarne in 635 AD, and the monastery there became a center of a major saint's cult celebrating its bishop, Saint Cuthbert. And a monk called Cuthbert joined the monastery at Lindisfarne in the 670s, and he eventually became Lindisfarne's greatest monk bishop and the most important saint in northern England in the Middle Ages. So we know about Lindisfarne because of him, and and that's part of its significance, and it's also significant because of the Lindisfarne Gospels, which, again, many listeners might be familiar with. The Lindisfarne Gospels are the most significant Anglo-Saxon manuscripts, and it was created on Lindisfarne in the early 8th century. The ruins that are now visible when you go to the Priory are those of the 12th century Priory, which claimed kind of direct descent from that early monastery. But, of course, the kind of peace and tranquility that we think about when we think about an early monastic settlement and a priory were totally disrupted on the 8th of June, 793, when Lindisfarne suffered a devastating raid by Vikings. And this was their first significant attack in Western Europe. And Viking raids after this really increased in frequency around the coast of Britain and Ireland and by 850, foreign armies were sort of overwintering in England. And by 870, the Danish conquest of the northern Midland and eastern Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had begun. And so Lindisfarne has this tranquility being violently disrupted at this point. But it's a really pivotal moment, again, in shaping the history of England. You know, Lindisfarne and the Lindisfarne Gospels are incredibly important in terms of this monastic and ecclesiastical history history. And then we have this moment where England's political story also gets totally changed. And Lindisfarne is really a key point or key place for that history as well.
1: Yes, you can find out more about that whole story in episode 105, Saints' Gospels and Vicious Viking Raids.
2: Yeah, I think for me, when you're standing in the ruins of the Priory, when you're at Lindisfarne, you can kind of feel this contrast. If you think about the story, you can sort of immerse yourself in this tranquility of monasticism and that monastic life and, and the life of the saint, and particularly for those people who might even want to make a personal pilgrimage to see the new memorial to St. Cuthbert, that's available. And then you can really get a sense of just how terrifying it must have been to sort of be immersed in this routine of tranquility, of reflection, and then have these people show up, you know, who really aren't interested in that at all, and who instead want to try to, you know, extract the wealth or extract resources that they need for their own communities and for their own situation. I think it's really palpable, the meaning of that place from lots of different perspectives. And we really want visitors, um, we really want to help visitors understand that when they go.
1: Being on the tip of northeast England there, just out into the North Sea, you're also probably feeling quite exposed as a monk in the early Middle Ages, aren't you? I can imagine how that would have been a great, great shock for marauding Vikings to suddenly just turn up and start burning things and breaking things and what have you, and killing people.
2: Absolutely. Out of the blue, you know, it would have felt like.
1: What can visitors see at the sites then, as a result of the new changes in the way that the story is being told?
2: So we've got a beautiful new museum refresh. And so why I'm saying it's beautiful is that we really wanted to draw out the inherent beauty in the objects on display. And these are objects which are incredibly important for understanding the history of Lindisfarne. And again, trying to help people make that connection between themselves and the people who were there in the past. And so the object displays are really highlighting the site's unique and important objects for people. There's also new and updated panels that you can find around the place, you know, explaining the site and its significance, as well as a new memorial to St. Cuthbert, which, as I mentioned, some listeners may be interested in as a focus for a personal pilgrimage. And the teams that put all of this together worked really closely with the Holy Island community, and I'm particularly proud of that.
1: Mm. And you just mentioned Holy Islands there. This is another name for Lindisfarne, isn't it?
2: Yes, Lindisfarne and Holy Island are the same place. They have these two names but it's the same place.
1: Presumably, thanks to all these changes being made and improvements, there'll be a bumper season perhaps in the spring and summer of 2023.
2: Yes. It's a site of international significance and it's a place of immense tranquility, of community and of meaning. And Its role in shaping England's story is particularly poignant. So, I think the investment that we've made there will, I hope, help visitors engage with these stories more deeply, but also encourage them to visit.
1: Well, staying in Northumberland, let's now head 35 miles south to the medieval ruined Warkworth Castle. Who lived at Warkworth? What does it look like today?
2: Warkworth is really a castle lover's castle. It's the ancestral seat of the powerful Dukes of Northumberland, where the Percy family lived, and it's played an incredibly important role in, I guess, the political history of England. Just going back to the castle, it is on a sort of a high artificial mound. It's got a fortified enclosure or bailey, and there's a hermitage for a priest, which is nearby in this sort of surrounding park on the other side of the river. So it's kind of has it all. From an architectural perspective, it's one of the largest and most impressive castles in northern England, and part of its importance lies in that role as the chief residence of the Percy family as well as the architectural quality in particular of the late fourteenth century Great Tower. And the Great Tower is really at the heart of the visitor experience and is a really incredible place to explore. This is it make me sound really American. It's kind of the ultimate castle. The grounds are vast, there's so much to explore and the Great Tower itself, you know, has all of these different chambers that are different heights and different sizes there's all of these really ingenious system of wall stairs and you can just kind of get lost in it in a good way and discover more with each visit
1: i think any american listeners are probably already planning their trips um but um obviously english heritage has spent money to improve the visitor offering at walkworth so what can they expect to find that's going to impress them
2: We've got a brand new scheme which is intended to really showcase the complex political history of Warkworth. And we've used that as that history as inspiration for new trails and the basis for exploring many of the spaces in the castle on a kind of interactive adventure that brings the people and the politics of the medieval court to life. You know, Warkworth played a really important role in the long running war between England and Scotland in the 14th century, and then had an additional role during the War of the Roses. So these are a kind of iconic, incredibly important moments in England's history. And so what Warkworth allows us to do is, you know, help people understand these points in the past as they make their journey around and explore this castle.
1: And for people who are looking this up, perhaps on the internet, it's W-A-R-K-W-O-R-T-H castle.
2: Yeah, Warkworth is, is incredible. And it has this additional feature, which is the hermitage. And the hermitage is not part of the main castle site. You have to walk, there's wonderful signage around, so it's really easy to find. I get myself lost all the time and, and I managed to find it easily, so without losing myself, so that was great. There's wonderful signage and you, you make your way down to the river and there's an English Heritage staff member with a little boat that will row you across the river to the hermitage. So the hermitage is only accessible by boat and we only allow the boat to run on days when the river current is slow so that you can make a safe trip. But you you should check with the site beforehand if visiting the hermitage is on your bucket list and it really should be. So we keep talking about a hermitage. What is a hermitage? Well, it is a place where a hermit lived. In the case of Warkworth, it's probably more accurately described as a chantry, which is a form of private chapel. And the hermit there would have been a priest that was hired by the earl to say prayers for the family. So the hermitage at Warkworth is carved out of stone, It's carved out of rock. There's a a very large rocky outcrop and the hermitage was, was actually carved into it. It consists of a sort of outer portion built of stone and an inner portion, which was hewn from the sandstone cliff above the river. And the inner part has a chapel and another small chamber with altars. And there's, I guess, one of the most famous elements within this is an altar tomb with a female effigy in the chapel. So the priest or the hermit would have lived there and the living quarters for the hermit are also present in the hermitage as well as a kind of kitchen all of which are carved out of this cliff. As you're you're exploring it, you just kind of can't help but wonder what life would have been like for the priests that were living there. It's pretty Spartan, but also totally unlike any other English heritage site I've ever been to. It's very, very unique in the National Heritage Collection and of course incredibly important. Not just for that reason, but because of its architectural significance and also its connection to Warkworth.
1: Yes, yeah, it's a very immersive experience if you can get your if you can step inside and get into the head of the person who's living there on their own, communing with God as their job for the landowner. I think that's a really quite unique visitor attraction, which has always been there anyway. Uh, From one W to another then, we're on to Whitley Court and heading further south into the main body of England, into the Midlands area. This is our final stop and it's Whitley Court and Gardens in Worcestershire. What is Whitley Court and Gardens and what should first-time visitors know about the site?
2: It's an incredible country house that sort of slowly reveals itself as you make your way from the visitor centre through some really wonderful gardens and wooded landscapes. And it seems to kind of emerge from a wood, from the wood as if by magic, which is appropriate as it is one of our most, I would say magical sites. It has nothing to do with magic, just the atmosphere and romanticism of the architecture as you approach is really, I would say second to none. Whitley was built originally in the 17th century and it was remodeled in the Victorian period and served as a majestic ornate country house until a fire in 1937. When disaster struck and the fire sort of ripped through the building, the shell and the ruined structure we see today is the result of that disaster.
1: So you're kind of seeing a a ghost of a palace.
2: Definitely. And yeah, you're seeing the ghost of the palace. And one of the things I think is so incredible about Whitley is as you walk around, you can kind of get a behind the scenes view of what these places would have looked like from the inside without all of the trappings of grandeur and bling and glitz that we typically find. You know, how are these houses actually made? And it's it's really interesting, really, really fascinating.
1: So some, something that um, architectural historians would be interested in, engineers?
2: You know, if you're a little bit nosy about what's behind the mask, you can see it at Whitley. You know, at its height, Whitley Court was one of the great country houses of England. And it reached its peak in the Victorian period when it was sort of the setting for these extravagant parties and royal entertainments. And so you you have that spectacular history. But actually, once you take all of that away, what's left are the bones of this place. And it's really fascinating. It's one of the most spectacular ruins of England, definitely.
1: I mean, for people listening to this who don't know the site, that I think they're already quite excited because it's just so beautiful, despite the fact that it's lost its original grandeur. But you can see there's still a lot to look at and to discover, including, of course, the gardens. How will this story of this pleasure palace, which was gutted by fire and forever changed, be now told to visitors?
2: There's a, a few sort of highlights for me that visitors shouldn't miss. So, we've got new interpretation that's going in. We're doing much more work with the gardens. You know, the gardens at Whitley Court are really incredible, and they were designed by William Andrew Nesfield in the mid 1850s. The history of those designs and the history of that is, is something that we, we draw out a lot more. We're going to also delve into the history of, of how the house kind of came together and how it happened. And that allows us to delve into the connections between the role of the Midlands industrial history and particularly the coal mines in financing Whitley's extensive remodeling and gardens in the mid 19th century. And that's not a story that's particularly told on site now, but it will be as part of this new scheme. And I think it can often seem like these country houses sort of pop up out of nowhere, but actually they have these enormous roots And connections to all sorts of places that aren't necessarily obvious, you know, at first glance. And so we want to be drawing those connections out as well. The history of that connection to the coal mine is also important because it's really also linked into one of Whitley's, I guess, wonders, which is its Perseus and Andromeda fountain that received extensive refurbishment in 2016. And it was the centerpiece of this landscape design that William Andrews Nesfield put together for Whitley Court. And the fountain itself was designed to spout water using an entirely mechanical system. And to operate the fountain, 4,000 gallons of water were pumped from a nearby pool to a reservoir more than a half mile away and 30 meters above the level of the house. That is a very, very long distance for water to have to travel. And it was this architecture, this engineering of the fountain that meant that the main jet from the sea monster's mouth reached a heat height of 36 meters. And so when the site opens, there's an hourly display, which you re- everybody really needs to go and see. But it's difficult to understand the engineering of this fountain Outside of the broader context of engineering developments of the mid 19th century, and also this history of mining, because all of these things are really interlinked. You can't, you don't really have one without the other. And it was the mines that created the wealth that allowed these things to be built and this kind of opulence. And Whitley allows us to see both that opulence, but also the other side of it. So the architecture and the underpinnings of it and understand how all of these things are connected in the local and broader region.
1: So that brings together our total list of six out of more than 100 places that have been improved as part of this grand investment. There are, of course, free sites to talk about as well, Dominique, that have benefited from a cash injection. So could you talk us through a few noteworthy mentions?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um the free to enter sites and we call them free to enter because they're not free to to look after, but visiting them is definitely free for the public. They're scattered all over the country from Berwick to the tip of Cornwall. You know, just because a site doesn't necessarily have a visitor center, it doesn't mean that it's not important or worth visiting. So as Kate mentioned, we've done a lot of work with the free-to-enter sites along Hadrian's Wall, and that has allowed us really to capitalize on the work and the new work that's been done at Burt Oswald, at Corbridge, and all of the sites in between to really help people understand the wall in a, a sort of a single giant site. We've done some really interesting new interpretation at the sites in Dartmoor National Park, and there's a new audio guide that visitors can download to their phone and listen at home, or it also works as an audio guide on site, and that's been a really enjoyable project and really, really exciting. One of our most successful sites that we've recently worked on is at Barry St. Edmunds, And that it may be one of the most visited English heritage sites in the portfolio because so many people pass by it every day and we don't really know, you know, how many people read the panels, but it's certainly been a a work that's brought together the community as well as our experts and everybody to really put together beautiful reconstructions and really illustrate the history of that place. I think for me, what the free-to-enter sites offer is the opportunity to go someplace often you may be there on your own and experience these wonderful, important places, you know, without the trappings that kind of tourism has to offer. And that can be really, really exciting, because I think in some ways, some of those sites can offer you a a really personal opportunity to connect with the past and really feel the presence of the people that were there before you. So we have 420 sites in the National Heritage Collection, the majority of them are free to enter sites, and it's really important about this project, about this program, the Small and Free Sites Enhancement Program, is that it gives us and also our visitors, you know, a chance to learn about the sites that are in different parts of the country, and they can get a sense of the breadth of the sites that people can come and enjoy, and some of the fascinating stories of the past that all of these sites allow us to step into. There are so many hidden gems in the portfolio, and those sites can be found across the country on people's doorstep.
1: Kate, for you, as Chief Executive of English Heritage, what are the things that you've learned from this mammoth project?
0: Well, what's been really obvious to us is that the smaller sites are hugely appreciated. I mean, you might focus when you're sitting around the the management boardroom on Stonehenge and Dover Castle and Tintagel and the biggies, as it were. But actually, what visitors love is the discovery of the free sites. You know, 300 of the 420 sites that we look after are free to visit. If you're a member, you've got your handbook in your car and you you know that if you just turn one mile off the road, you're going to come across something absolutely amazing you'd otherwise have missed. And we do get really positive feedback from visitors and, and in particular local communities, because in refreshing how we tell the story of a particular site, we very often now involve the local community. So for example, at Launceston Castle in Cornwall, when we were refreshing the museum there and giving it a bit of a pep up in terms of how we tell the story, we involve the local school, the local community, the local Rotary Club have been involved. And as a result, we've used a local poet as the person to tell the story on the site. And the cat from one of his poems is actually on all the panels. And that's something that people really appreciate because it makes the site feel part of their community. And that's really important to us because we look after these sites for the nation, for the people who live in England. And the feedback we get when we put the effort into making the sites really sing is wonderful to hear.
1: If you had to choose just one or two favourite sites to revisit from all those in this project, which ones would they be Uh, for you, Kate, first?
0: Well, it's a really hard one, isn't it? Because each one has its little excitement of being somewhere really special. But I suppose a couple that I would highlight are there's one called Maiden Castle in Dorset, which is an Iron Age hill fort, of which we have many. But this one is the size of 50 football pitches. I mean, can you imagine? It's absolutely huge. And it was built in the first century BC to protect hundreds of residents. But when they first built it, it would have been gleaming white chalk. You know, the ramparts would have been visible from miles around. But it's just the whole scale of it. And what we've done is we've done an immersive audio. We call it an echoscape that you can download on your phone before you visit. And then you can wander around the top of it, listening to the voices of the people who live there. Absolutely amazing. And then at the other end of the scale, I suppose, another particular favourite of mine is Down House in Kent, which is the home of Charles Darwin, who lived there for 40 years and used the gardens as an open-air laboratory and did all his thinking about the origin of species and came up with all sorts of theories. And there you can do a science-based family tour where it just makes you get excited about science, really this is a man who's prepared to stare at the same blades of grass year in, year out and observe exactly what was happening with them. You know, you realise that that is genius comes from hard work and his observations and the detailed notes he took year in, year out, season in, season out really comes home to you when you, you visit a site like that.
1: Dominique, what, what would be your favourite sites to visit, perhaps out of this six, if you had to make a, a recommendation to listeners for which ones to visit first?
2: for me Grimes Graves and Lindisfarne are probably my two top recommendations for visitors from this list Grimes Graves because there's really nowhere else like it it's pretty out of the way for people and but I think if you if you are making a long trip it's it's definitely worth it and Lindisfarne because it, again it's I guess I like sites that are a bit on the cusp it's a place that again forever changed the course of of English history And also a place of just profound meaning. Those two things together really make Lindisfarne one of my top recommendations. But you do need to check the tide timetables. You don't want to get your car stranded on with the tides.
1: No, you don't. It'd be very expensive. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Don't just turn up to Lindisfarne. Make sure you really plan your visits, definitely. Yes. As a final point then, Dominique... I suppose the purpose of this episode is really just to show off how much there is to discover across the country. A lot of money has been spent, a lot of time has been spent as well on bringing these stories to life. Uh, A lot of effort by lots of people, artists, researchers, historians, animators, all kinds of types of work have gone into this. So actually, 2023, I suppose, is going to be the year of celebrating all this new knowledge and information and sharing it. Really, it's going to be about enjoying sharing history together.
2: That's absolutely right. It's an extraordinary privilege to be able to spend your working time thinking about how to communicate the stories of these of these sites to people who may be very familiar with them, who may never have heard of them before. But we never rest on our laurels, and as soon as the last of this batch of sites is launched and open to the public, or the new interpretation is open to the public, for most of these sites they've never closed, we'll be looking at the next group of sites that need some extra attention and some extra love. and where we have new historical discoveries because that's one of the other things that drives our, our work. When we find out things about these places, we wanna share them with people as quickly as we can. And so this is a sort of a never ending process, but that's one of the best things about it is that you're, you're always learning something new. You're always finding out about a new place and you can really go anywhere in England. And if you see one of our little brown signs with the little crenellated square, you know, you can follow the signs and pitch up somewhere and you're gonna learn something new and it's gonna be, you know, there's some, some incredible story just waiting to be discovered. And that's not to say that our famous sites that everybody's heard of like Stonehenge don't have things to offer, they're, they're absolutely incredible. But the small sites and the free sites that we look after, the hundreds of other places that listeners haven't heard of, these programs are focused on the hidden gems and that is always a treat to be able to explore those hidden gems ourselves and, and think about how we can best share them with the public.
1: Well, it's been fabulous talking to you. Thank you very much for your time and for explaining these six sites out of more than 100 that have been improved for visitors in the last few years so that they can visit in 2023. Obviously, thousands of hours of, of work to present these stories so that people can really understand and value English history.
2: Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you, Charles. I hope people will come
0: and visit. We'd love to see you.
1: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're finding out about the prehistoric eating and drinking vessels dug up around Stonehenge, and how modern-day replicas are helping visitors get closer to the ancient past. Until then, thanks for listening.